of all the scriptures I'm going to read to you. It's from the book of Ezekiel. I bet you haven't read that one recently. And here's chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Um, this morning's sermon is called, When God Turns Up. And then next week, the last verse is about who turns up, which is awesome. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And I looked, and behold, a stormy wind came up out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of it, there was um, a burning fire like a gleaming metal. It's um, 593 years before Jesus Christ, and Ezekiel finds himself um, living by the, the Kibar River out in the wilderness, out in the desert of, of, of Babylon. It's pathetic. I mean, he was used to, with these exiles, being up in the mountains of Judah and gazing at the magnificence of Solomon's beautiful temple. He's used to the singing and the dancing that would go on as they went up to the temple. But now instead, they find themselves living by the Kibar River, out in the desert in Babylon, having been taken captive. The king who took them captive um, is King Nebuchadnezzar, the famous King Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel, and Daniel is more or less a contemporary of Ezekiel. You remember he became powerful in, in the kingdom, despite um, being in exile. In Daniel, um, Daniel describes the, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar as being like a lion with eagles. And archaeologists have dug up images of, of Nebuchadnezzar as being like a prowling, vicious, voracious lion. I mean, basically, he moved up what we call the, the Fertile Crescent. You know, he went up the Euphrates River and then down through the seaboard of the Mediterranean, through Israel, uh, heading all the way down to the Nile in Egypt, because that's where civilization was in, those, in that time. And he wanted that whole thing for himself. He was a voracious, roaring, awful lion. And... Now, what he did was he's already plundered Jerusalem once and plundered the temple. He hasn't destroyed it yet, but he's taken all the chief citizens of Jerusalem, anybody who is anybody. And I don't mean that you had to be really somebody. Unless you were nobody, he, he moved you out. And he's taken all the chief citizens and he's taken them down to go live by the Kibar River, actually, um, archaeologist tells us it's a canal. It's a canal that, 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 that connects the Euphrates to the second largest city in Babylon. He's taken them and they're living there in a ruined village, town, um, where nobody would want to live. Not even in Babylon, the chief city, which we are told was the first great city of the ancient world that had 200,000 citizens. Now they're by a Kibar Canal, and that's where they are given to live. And, and, and of course, they're in exile. They're depressed. They're sad. They're wondering what on earth is going on. And then our text introduces us to Ezekiel. 
And um, Ezekiel is described as the son of Buzi, which means, you know, dad was really quite well known up in Jerusalem. And we're told that, it, that Ezekiel is 30 years old. That is the age at which one became a priest. So he's ready to take up his vocational calling as a priest. It was also the age you remember when Jesus entered um, into his public ministry. And, and there we are described this man Ezekiel who hears the word of the Lord and sees these incredible visions of who God is. And Ezekiel sitting by the Kibar Canal, you can imagine how depressed he is. There's a famous psalm, it's Psalm 137, if you know um, any Bob Marley. And if you wonder how I know Bob Marley, it's because um, that's where I, I'm from Jamaica, believe it or not, originally. And so I fell asleep to the sound of Bob Marley. I'm coming out of the huge speakers. You might know his, his great version. It's a lament on the fallenness of the human condition and what it means to be taken captive. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? And we are taken captive, okay? It is utterly humiliating. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. It's utterly humiliating. The, the Israelites, the, their self-identity was that God took us out of slavery in Egypt, put us up in the beautiful mountains of Judah. And up there in the mountains, David was raised up our great king. He won all of our battles for us and he secured peace for us. And then came his son Solomon with his magnificent building enterprises, his temples, for example, and his poetry and his music and, and all that he collected. We are the proud people of God. And now they find themselves not singing and dancing up in the mountains of Jerusalem. They find themselves sitting beside an irrigation ditch out in the desert, having been taken captive by a powerful king. When we're taken captive, we know it. It is absolutely humiliating. More than that, it is absolutely perplexing. We began our worship um, with a psalm, you remember? For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. When you, you go to Second Chronicles 5, 13 to 14, that, that refrain comes up again. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, over a hundred years before, the ten northern tribes of Israel had been taken exile um, and they had been taken exile um, by the Assyrians. And you know, the ten tribe, lost tribes of Israel, they're gone. They're removed from history. But the two southern tribes, technically Judah, still have Jerusalem, and they still have the temple. And the, in the temple, the glory of the Lord is said to dwell. And the temple has been sacked and plundered even, but it's still there. It's barely hanging on, but it is hanging on. And, and the people of Judah just don't believe 
It's too perplexing to think that the Lord who promises us that his love endures forever and that the glory of the Lord is in the temple, that 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 temple should be lost and that we should be removed and we should find ourselves living out in the desert um, beside an, an irrigation canal. And the worst part of it is that we'll discover it later in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. The worst part is the Babylonians mock them. <laughs> you guys, your God got left up in the mountains, okay? He's not relevant. He's outside of his sphere of jurisdiction in Babylon. And besides, he didn't do so well for you, did he, back there, much less now. And so they're perplexed about what it means to be living in exile. We know what it's like, right? When we find ourselves in exile of one sort or another, it may be as simple as not feeling at home in high school or something, or it may be that we discover that it's the last thing we ever thought would happen to us, but our marriage is falling apart, or whatever it is, or we may have been touched by some sort of suffering or disease or or whatever. We understand how perplexing it is. And Satan, the accuser, is telling us, like the Babylonians told them, God's outside of his jurisdiction when it comes to living in, in West Town or, or Florida in the 21st century. Go on, man. That may have been relevant to Martin Luther, whose great hymn that we sung. may have even been relevant to your mom or your dad or your grandparents. But is he really relevant right here, right now? And just as an aside, by the way, I don't know if you noticed it, but our text is filled with all kinds of historical references because God not only reveals himself in history, but he reaches down to rescue us in real time and real space and real place. And so if God reaches down in real time and real place and real space, not to give us nice little stories to make us good boys and girls, but to rescue us when we find ourselves to be in exile and don't know what's going on, then he can do that for us here right now where we find ourselves and where we are. So the the other thing about the exile, it was entirely their fault. You won't believe this, but, but they had adopted the gods of their neighbors. And when you read Ezekiel, he talks about their worshiping on top of every hill where they... Canaanite gods would have their little shrines set up. And up there they practiced so-called sacred prostitution. But that's nothing. They took their sons and their daughters. If you can believe Israel, the people of God doing this, they took their sons and daughters and offered them as a sacrifice on the altar. And the society was shot through with social injustice. It's all over Ezekiel. The rich are taking advantage of the poor. And there's violence everywhere in in all the cities. And, And so really and truly, it's entirely their own fault that they are in exile. Now, it's not always our own fault. Sometimes things like suffering have come upon us from the outside. But you know, I know, that the times when we are exiled, when we are out of it, it's largely been our fault that we find ourselves there. And here's the worst part. It was utterly, utterly inexcusable. 
In a moment, I'm going to read to you from a magnificent passage in um, the prophet Hosea, who was before this time. I was reminded of it um, from this book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. Um, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. If you haven't read this, um, really consider it, please. I, it's easy to read, but it's so moving. I'm, I'm actually on my third reading of it. And I mentioned this because somebody a couple weeks ago said to me, you remember you mentioned that book? I went out and bought it and it's blessing me so much. So think about it. But I, I was reminded of the Hosea passage from this book. And, and let me read it to you. It's about our Heavenly Father. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And, and out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I land them with the cords of kindness and with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yokes on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. When God has treated us so kindly all the days of our lives, when he's reached down and rescued us in the past, when he's blessed us, how can we find ourselves in exile, all maybe because of our own fault, and because we have forgotten the love that he has shown us, since we were little children. But now comes the amazing part. And the amazing part is where it is that the Lord turns up. You see, if you're like me or you're given to religion of one sort or of another, and you find yourself in exile this morning, um, you, you, you and I were thinking, hey, when I clean things up and I get back up to Jerusalem, the Lord will turn up and greet me and say, nice to see you again. No. It is out there by the irrigation ditch, completely overcome by the great Nebuchadnezzar. It is out there by the, in the desert and the wilderness of Babylon that the Lord turns up. And that should blow your mind and blow my mind as well, right? But, but that's the gospel. We, we read it earlier from Romans um, 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Or the amazing Paul. I mean, if... There's ever an amazing Christian. It's Paul, right? What does he say? He says to us, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That's where he turns up. That's where he turns up. He turns up in our helplessness. He turns up in our powerlessness. He turns up when we find ourselves in exile. Or as he said in Ephesians, just changing the imagery a little, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. He didn't set his love on us because we were good boys and girls. He set his love upon us because we needed him. And because he's gracious. And because he's kind. And because he's merciful. My favorite quotation outside of the Bible comes um, from Martin Luther, the, the great reformer. The, you remember we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God earlier on. And, and I just love this passage that he has here. Therefore, he says, it is the sweetest righteousness of God the Father that he does not ser- save imaginary, but real sinners. You get that? It's, it's, he doesn't say want to be Pharisees. He doesn't say imaginary sinners. You know, people say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, but I don't really believe that. I'm a good Pharisee. He doesn't save imaginary sinners, but real sinners. Sustaining us in spite of our sins and accepting our works and our lives, which are all deserving of rejection, until he perfects and saves us. Meanwhile, We live under the protection and the shadow of his wings, and we escape his judgment through his mercy, not through our righteousness. That's where the Lord turns up for us in the wilderness. It's not that he wasn't here when we were having a great time and doing well, and that he wasn't rejoicing with us. Um, I think back on my adult kids. One of them was doing very well in his business, and the other one was living within a hundred yards of the twin towers when they came down. And first of all, we wondered if he was even alive, and and then then he lost his job because the economy collapsed after that, and he had no work, and and he was living in New York. You know how expensive that is. Was our heart still rejoicing with our other son who was doing well at the time? Of course it was. But where was our heart, really? It was with our son who was in trouble. And it's the same with us. Yes, he rejoices with us when things are going well. But his heart goes out to us, Westtown, when we're in trouble. His heart goes out to us. When our marriage is coming apart at the seams and we never dreamt that it would. His his heart goes out to us when we need him. When we're living in the wilderness, out there in exile. That is where indeed he comes and he meets us. And this is because you see of who God is. I'm going to go back to the Hosea passage. This part is incredible. The next verse is 8 to 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Put your name in there. How can I give you up, Stephen? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Did you hear that? I am God, not a man, the Holy One. And I'm like, yeah, I guess you're God and you're holy. So are you going to take me out to the back and give me a good whooping behind the shed, right? No. I will not come to you in wrath. You understand that if you trust in Jesus Christ, The Lord cannot come to you in wrath again. 
Jesus paid for all our sins. Are we going to pay for them a second time? That wouldn't be just, would it? No, he doesn't come to us in wrath. He may come to train us, put us into training. He may have to help us through what we're going through, even if it is our own fault. But he is God, not man. You know, when we end into trouble, our friends will say, I knew it was going to happen to you. I told you so. You deserve it. What do you think was going to happen to you? God's not that way, he says. I'm God, not man. I'll come to you and not in wrath, but I will come to you to love you, to put you in training, and I'll come to you and I will meet you where you are this morning and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Why? Because you see, this is about his glory. (laughs) It's hard to get this. His glory is seen in that he is gracious, merciful, kind, loving, and never, ever gives up on us, Westow. He just doesn't. Because he's God, and that's who he is. And it's absolutely awesome. And then lastly, what it is that he does for us. Here's what he does for us. Um, We are told, first of all, that the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord is quite literally the word of the Lord, his promises. But, you know, we can push it past that, can't we? We have to go all the way to the end. The word, Jesus, became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Not, Not met us up in the temple. He became flesh and pitched his tent among us. You remember there was a time when the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? And in all the ways that we failed and Israel failed out in the wilderness, Jesus was obedient so that he could die for our sins and be raised on the third day to give us new life. He finally is the Word. And the word comes to us this morning, literally in the text of Scripture, but ultimately in the person of Jesus. And when we take his forgiveness, and when we take his life, and we bring his presence into our lives, or better put, he turns up to give us his presence, then everything changes. And then in verse 3, the last thing, it says that the Lord put his hand upon Ezekiel. If you go over to the book of Daniel, and Daniel, you remember, is a contemporary during this time. He rose to great prominence in Nebuchadnezzar's empire in Babylon. If you go over into the book of Daniel, you have this magnificent passage um, where we said, we read, Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me and I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak. You have strengthened me. When we hear his word, his Holy Spirit, as it were, puts his hand upon us. And when he puts his hand upon us, even when we're out there in the wilderness, we find ourselves to be strengthened and we can stand on our feet, West Town. Because he has put 
his hand upon us. Because he is God, not man. Because he is gracious, because he is merciful, because he is kind, because he is loving, because his heart goes out to his sons and daughters. And he will not let us perish out there in the wilderness. And he absolutely will not lose us. And so when we hear his word, even, no, not even, especially when we find ourselves in the wilderness, he comes to us and he strengthens us and he loves us and he restores us and he renews us. Now, Ezekiel got a long, long way to go, okay? And let me tell you, Ezekiel's got a long road to travel. But guess what? hand of the Lord is upon him. And you and I, we may just have begun our walk with Christ this morning. Or we may be recovering from some wilderness experience. We have a long way to go too, all right? But you can be sure of this, that he will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. We've heard his word, who is Jesus, and he's put his hand upon us promises us by name this morning. West Town, Steve, your name. He promises us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you because I'm God now.